Acts chapter 12. There's some cool stuff in Acts chapter 12 we're going to deal with. <coughs> now, about that time, it, it, put it on perspective, it's been a couple of weeks. Chapter 11, Peter goes to Antioch. I mean, uh, uh, Barnabas is in Antioch. Uh, take Saul, you know, they get everything checked out. The church at Antioch is, is good to go. You know, the Gentile movement has begun. We're going to see when we get to chapter 13, man, they're going to start going out to get Gentiles and come to Christ. Get them in. We've seen Gentiles come to faith. We've seen Samaritans come to faith. Peter's been a part of all that. The church at Jerusalem by this time, and we're, we're going to be in, at this point, you know, probably late 30s, maybe early 40s, somewhere in there. You know, people can guess, but it doesn't really matter. The church at Jerusalem, you know, is there by now. James, the brother of Jesus, has kind of assumed a lot of the leadership there. He's, he's well thought of in, in the city of, of uh, Jerusalem, even by the Jews. He's benevolent. He, he, you know, he, he goes to the temple services. He works to minister to Jews, who even who aren't followers of Christ, the church has a good reputation with the people, but it's starting to come into conflict now with the Jewish leadership and with others. And so it tells us about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to abuse him or mistreat them, kill him. Now this Herod, there's a lot of Herods. Every time I deal with the Herod, every time I got to go back and research all these guys because there's like four Herods mentioned in the New Testament. There's another one alluded to, several of his kids, and they all have similar names and they're all evil and they all run together. This is Agrippa the first. He is the grandson of Herod the Great when Jesus was born, that Herod. His grandfather had actually killed his daddy who was his favorite son. <laughs> he killed his favorite son. That's, that's, I don't know how that works, but he did. And so his mama, when he was young, he was born about 11 B.C., sent him to Rome to get away from his granddaddy to be raised. And so he ended up being raised by uh, the court, the establishment of Rome. He became good friends with a guy named Gaius, Gaius would follow Tiberius as emperor. You know Gaius better as Caligula of the depravity and perversion fame. Served four years. Gaius put him in a power of position in the Holy Land, in Israel. When Caligula died, it was killed. And if ever a God needed to be killed, it was Caligula. Claudius took over, and Claudius actually gave him even more power. He ended up being about as powerful as his father, I mean, grandfather Herod had been, understanding he was still under Roman rule. So you need to get this picture. This is a very powerful, corrupt, connected, evil man. And he wanted to keep peace, and he wanted to for the most part, appeased the Jewish leadership. And so at this point, he took hands on, on some of the church leaders. And it said that he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, cut his head off. When, when James and John had asked Jesus if they could sit in the places of honor, 
Jesus said, that's not for me to decide, but you will get one honor. You will drink from the cup of which I drink. He predicted for both of them suffering. Now, to be honest, all 12 of the apostles, including Judas who killed himself, they all suffered. All but John would die at the hands of persecutors. John would be exiled, and uh, he would suffer in, in many horrible tortures. Here, James is the first of the 12 to die. Stephen had died before him. Some think that this is in fulfillment of what Jesus said, but it, and, and, and I'm not saying it isn't, but you know, it, it begins for the first time now, then you begin to wonder, well, why did he suffer this way, and why did John outlive him by over 60 years? I mean, his brother John would outlive him 55, 60 years, depending on exactly when this is. If, if we assume this is during the time of Claudius, early 40s, because the death of Herod comes rather quickly in the story, or, you know, however it is, he still lived about, about 50 years, 55 years past him. And it's not for us to say, but the important thing is to understand James has been killed. Because it leads us to the next thing. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was during the days of unleavened bread. In other words, the Passover had occurred. And it was right after that, and that he couldn't do anything during the, the Jewish holiday. So he had him in jail. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers, Luke given great detail, to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people for a show trial and kill him. So Peter was kept in the prison. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And so I'm going to stop here and talk about this. We absolutely understand what the church should be paying, praying for Peter. It says they prayed fervently, or it means they prayed with great passion, with great desire, probably for hours on end, never ceasing. Maybe they had a, just people praying all, 24 hours at a time. <coughs> What's interesting is it doesn't tell us if they did the same for James. It's possible that James was arrested quickly and killed before they could gather. Though certainly there would have been a trial. We, it would almost have to have been a trial, so some time would have passed. Maybe they didn't realize the severity of the situation. More than likely, though, we should assume, and I think it's not a, an assumption that's far off, that they prayed the same way for James. Luke's not focusing on what happened to James. He's going to focus on the story of Peter, and we're going to see Peter being delivered. So it, it brings up an important question in my mind when I read this. And the question I'm going to ask God as I read through this is, why did you spare Peter and not James? Why? And, and, and did, did the prayer make the difference? I know her many sermon that said the reason Peter was, was released was because of their prayers, and that's a dangerous place to be. Because you're saying that the response of God in terms of life and death matters are deter is determined by the degree to which you and I pray, asking for God for certain things. And you don't want to get into a place where decisions that God makes is dependent upon your prayer. You are in the area of what we call paganism. You're in the area of manipulation. We obviously pray for God. And many times we pray for God 
even in the sense of God, could you change the course of the way things are going? Which is what they're praying. Peter's going to die. So obviously the prayer is, God, you, gotta, you, can, you, you can change this. But here I think what the prayer is. The prayer is the recognition, God, you are able to do certain things. You are able to change this situation. You ever pray that prayer? I have, obviously. I still pray it. You know, obviously, I pray that prayer. And what happens when God doesn't do that? Does it mean that I didn't pray hard enough? Were not enough people praying? Did I need two more people to pray for God to do what I asked him? Hey, God, you know, and I'm praying, the church is praying, and God's like, man, you were like three people shy of enough prayers for me to do it. You were, you were 30 minutes short of getting what you wanted. If you'd, David, if you'd stayed awake and prayed 30 more minutes, you don't believe that. But in here, in, 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 in as a subtle message, not that the release of Peter was dependent upon the prayer, but that the people understood that the only thing they could do was pray to God. The importance is the understanding that we pray to God so God, for first of all, to make sure it is clear that we trust God with every situation. And secondly, so that God can prepare us for everything that happens. It is through the prayer asking God for his will to be done. And even slipping in there occasionally that I have a few ideas of what that will ought to be. That prepares me when God answers in even ways that I don't want him to. Now, the cool thing is sometimes God gives us exactly what we were praying for, but I, I, I think it's important to know he would have probably done that anyways. I don't ever want to get to a point, would God have released, would Peter have been rescued had the people not prayed fervently? Well, I think so. Because if he wasn't rescued, a whole lot of things that would have happened afterwards wouldn't have happened. And I believe in a God that's in absolute control of all situations. The purpose of the prayer was to strengthen Peter, who we'll see in a minute, wasn't too concerned since he was sleeping. But the purpose of the prayer is to show our complete dependence upon God. And to ask that God, in whatever way we do it, prepares us for whatever comes. Don't lose sight of that. Or you're going to get to a place, and there are many who are there, and I can take you to churches all over the area who think this way. You're going to get to a place where it is your prayers that determine God's response. And when you enter that world, you have left the building of faith, and you have moved into the world of paganism. That's all. It's pure paganism. I don't even know a way to put it. Because you're believing that you control and manipulate God. Just like they did in 1 Kings chapter 18. Which you can go read sometime, but not yet. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward. I love this. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains. And Gaius in front of the door were watching over the prison. So he's, he's he's a dangerous guy. He's got a guard chained to each hand. Four-hour shifts. He's got guards in front of the doors. There are guards on the way out of the prison. This is, this is a very dangerous man who's asleep. 
I don't know if I could sleep before that. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side. I love that. I banged him upside the head. He woke him up, said, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. <coughs> the word angel in the Greek and in the Hebrew, but the word angel is a word, angelos, that means messenger. It is a very robust word. That can mean everything from the created beings of angels that we think about in Gabriel to someone who acts on behalf of another. But most of the time, it is a messenger in the sense of an official capacity, so it fits the concept of angel. The debate a little bit here among scholars to some degree, and I use the word scholars loosely, it's just people who study a lot, have a lot of letters around their name and write books, but, you know, they're still smart people. It's whether or not this is an angel in the classic sense, angels we have heard on high, you know, or someone... And, and this is a cool scenario. And, and as one commentator said, it's a miracle either way. Understand this. But is it someone working on inside the palace who has come to rescue Peter? I mean, just, just think about some movie where there's a prisoner and there's an escape and somebody connected, has keys, gets in, you know, drugs, guards, you know, has cloak and dagger, gets him out. I mean, that kind of scenario, all right? And the argument is, and it's a good argument, it's a miracle either way. However, when you read the text, and you read the whole thing, which you'll see in a minute, seems pretty clear that this is the classic understanding of an angel. An angel has come to deliver him. Which begs the question, why don't angels do that more often? Do they ever do that today? And the answer I would suggest to you is no. God delivers today. But with the close of the New Testament era, and the closing of how God reveals himself to us would come the closing of that type of activity. Now, God still works in unbelievable ways. There's still deliverance. There's still amazing stories of God working. But I, I'm, not, I'm a skeptical of the idea of, of an angel. And, and let me tell you why. First place, we ought not to think of this as a guardian angel. And, and, and I'm going to go, here's why. If you have guardian angels, why did Peter's guardian angel do a good job and James's do a bad job? I mean, think about it. You, you've got to ask that question. I'm serious. James's guardian angel stunk. He was the worst. I mean, God had a lot of angels. He had to have known this guy didn't get the job done. James is one of the 12. You, you think 12 apostles, well, now Judas is dead. The 11 got Paul in there. James, the brother of Jesus. That, get, get the best angels you got to those guys. So I'm, I'm being facetious, but you've got to think that way. At the same time, you have to believe in angels. And you have to believe that in the New Testament period, God used his angelic forces in spiritual warfare to deliver. He did that in numerous places. Luke, Luke the most scientific of all the writers, you know, he, 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 he talks about angels appearing to Zechariah. He talks about angels appear to Mary. You know, there's angels at the grave of Jesus. So you've got to believe that angels work. What we need to learn to do is let the scriptures say what they say and understand it in the context of what it means. 
You cannot come to this passage and extrapolate from this that angels are always working to deliver Christians. And the reason is it never gives you permission to do that. Anytime you're going to come to a conclusion, you better have biblical support for that. When you look at the totality of Scripture and the totality of the New Testament, what you see are isolated incidents when the angels work, but never a teaching, a doctrine, or an extrapolation that this is normative to the Christian life today. I'll tell you what is normative to the Christian life today. You know what it is? Who he is? It's the Holy Spirit. Think for a moment. I have the Holy Spirit of God working within me. Who do I want to work in my life? This is just me. Do I want to rely on the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is going to do exactly what is best, whether I like it or not? Or am I going to rely on an angel who may or may, may or may not be at the top of his graduating class? What I'm trying to say is, don't exchange the power of God in your life to believe in something that is less than that and think yourself spiritual and pat yourself on the back. Because I don't care about you. Do you want to do that? I have the Spirit of God guiding every step of my life. And when I pray, I ask God to work in my life. I don't want an angel to work in my life. What do I know? That's just me. But that doesn't mean that didn't happen. And you've got to believe it happened here. He said, gird yourself, put on your sandals. He did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around, follow. And he went out and he continued to follow. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Peter thought this was a vision. Peter didn't even know it was an angel. He wasn't expecting one. He's like, he's thinking, I'm dreaming, man. This can't be true. Notice, they passed the first and second guard. There were guards there. They passed right through them. Maybe they thought they were servants because servants would come and go. They certainly weren't expecting Peter. And here was this guy with Peter. Well, it looked like a guy. Maybe they, I'm sure they saw the angel. Maybe they did. I don't know. <clears throat> then they came to the iron gate. Lots of detail. That's typical of Luke. That leads to the city, which opened for them by itself. It just opened up. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. They got on, the, they got on whatever street they needed, and the angel left. His job was done. So here's Peter. He's out in the city. I mean, this is, this, I mean, just pretend you're watching a movie, you know, one of those epic movies back in the day, like, don't, like The Chosen or one of those movies, and just picture this in your mind. What's going on? What does Peter do? Well, it says Peter came to himself. In other words, he said, wow. Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel in rescuing me from the hand of Herod. From all the Jewish people, what they were expecting. <clears throat> so Peter said, yeah, God did this, and God did it through the angel. And he delivered me from Herod's people. So this, God accepts this as fact, because Peter says this is fact. Luke records it as fact. 
This is a pretty cool fact. Verse 12 says he realized this. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. And there were many gathered there, and they are praying. So you have the introduction of a couple of, this is a Mary, uh, meeting in an upper room. Some think this was the room where Jesus had the Last Supper. Some think this was the room where in Acts chapter 2 they were praying and gathering. Mary evidently was a woman of means. She had a house big enough. This was an uncommon house. And John Marcus mentioned he is the cousin of Barnabas. He'll factor into things in the next chapter. This is the John Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. And if you remember, if you were here two years ago when I preached through Mark in that four-month period from January through April, and one of the things I said is that Mark most likely got his information from Peter. So there would be a close connection between Mark and Peter as well as Mark and Paul who would have a party in the ways, who would have a bit of a split, but actually would end up reconciling in an unbelievable way. There were people up there. And it says they were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Knocked, you know, saying loud enough for them to hear, but not loud enough for anybody else to hear. It's Peter. She recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, but she didn't open the gate. But ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the front of the gate. This is comical a little bit. Peter says, it's me. I just got escaped from prison. She goes, oh, okay. Wait here. I don't know what she said. And she goes. There's a little bit of humor to that. It's kind of like, you know, hey, we've been praying for Peter. Peter's here. And so she goes and tells these guys. And they said, you're out of your mind. Well, weren't you praying for Peter to be released at some point? You're out of your mind. You're crazy. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying this is angel. So this is an ongoing conversation. Meanwhile, Peter's out there waiting. Now, notice what they said. They said this is his angel. And I don't know what that means. It doesn't mean the necessary thought of the guardian angel. It may have been that they thought it was the spirit of Peter or something of Peter in some sort of form. So understand this. There are things that are mentioned in the New Testament that they relay it doesn't mean that the writers believe this. Let me take you back. Joe did a wonderful job Sunday of preaching from 1 Corinthians 15. I've preached from there several times. Joe preached from there. Joe did exactly, did a really good job. You know. uh, there's some things I could help you with if you'd ask me, but you did a good job. No, but one of the things I kidded him with, I kidded him the other day because I do the same thing. I said, Joe, you didn't talk about that one part in there that no preacher ever talks about. There's a part in there in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, and Joe did a great, great job with all of that, where it talks about the baptism of the dead. Paul says, if, if there's no resurrection, why do you baptize the dead? And everybody says, oh, what does that mean? What is Paul teaching? Paul isn't teaching anything. He's just saying, you baptize the dead, why do you do that? Paul didn't say he believes in it. Paul didn't say that's normative. Paul didn't say, I baptized the dead. He's just saying, look, you knuckleheads, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you doing this dumb thing that you do where you baptize dead people? He's mentioning something that occurs. They, Paul quotes pagan, pagan poets. Jude does it. I mean, they, they, there are numerous places where they make reference to things that they don't believe in. So this is not to say Peter has an angel. Luke's just saying they thought it was. That didn't mean it's reality. It means early in the life of the church, there were things they believed and did because they hadn't come to maturity. You understand the New Testament hadn't been written yet. I mean, when this occurs, no part of the New Testament had been written. 
And so, you know, to some degree, they're just making it up as to go along. Not in a bad sense. They're just figuring this thing out. I get that. There are a lot of times where your only option is just to kind of wing it, you know, fake it till you make it, as they say. And they're just going through it. They're trying to figure it out. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, and they did that. Verse 16 says, but Peter continued knocking. I mean, he kept like, come on, guys. And when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were amazed. But this is cool. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he said, shh. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Then he said, report these things to James and the other brethren, probably the other apostles. Who's talking about? Because none of them were there. Then he left and he went to another place. And by the way, no one knows where he went. To this day, no one knows where Peter went. Peter was a wanted man. They were coming after Peter. And so Peter had to get. He went into hiding, much like Paul would go into hiding. Much like probably many of those apostles at times went into hiding. There's nothing wrong with fleeing so that you can live to share the gospel another day. It's instinctual. Now, now there comes a time when Peter was going to face death, and he faced it. It wasn't the time. God released him. Peter knew he had another purpose, and so he went. But he told them what happened. (coughs) So here you have this amazing story. Now, I think I'm not going to do the rest of the verses, only a few minutes of the chapter. I'll get them next week. But what I, what I want to stress to you is we have an amazing God who does amazing things in amazing ways that we don't always understand. And in our life, though we may not always get what we want, and things may not always work exactly what we plan, God is always going to work things what is best for us and for his kingdom. One apostle dies, another apostle lives. But the gospel kept going forward. Both eventually died and you know, went to heaven. You know, James went to be with the Lord. Peter went to be with the Lord, and, you know, 30 or 20-something years later after this, probably 24, 25 years later. But we should never believe that God is incapable of overcoming every situation. We should also never believe that because God doesn't work in the way that we think he should, that he's not working. He is always working to achieve his will. Our task is to find out where we fit in that will. And to pray so that we may seek his glory and seek our place and that we may be used by him. It is an amazing thing to read a story like this with a bit of humor and a bit of drama that Luke brings out. But it's the obvious thing about all of this isn't whether the prayer worked or the angels were real. angel was real. The key and obvious thing about all of this is that God accomplished exactly what he chose to accomplish. And neither Herod, the Jews, or anyone else were capable of defeating God 
in his will and purpose. God never loses, ever. He always gets exactly where he wants things to be. And I find that to be really comforting. 